Don't worry, Rich. Is that good? There we go. I move my hands too much to have a jacket. Uh, y'all will just have to appreciate it. You laugh because you know it's true. Deuteronomy 13 and 14. This afternoon we will look at the third commandment. The third commandment. To remind ourselves, the third commandment states this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. For this afternoon, we will ask the question, what did this commandment look like? What did taking God's name in vain look like for ancient Israel in its Old Testament context? So for our purposes, we will be in Deuteronomy 13 and 14. To repeat once again, just to introduce, Deuteronomy acts as a summary summary and a commentary for the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In these chapters, we see Moses expounding upon what the third commandment was to look like as it applied to the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 13, we see laws concerning what people are to do when confronted with false prophets, apostates. And in chapter 14, we see the clean and unclean food laws as they relate to Israel's unique status as God's covenant people. And I want us to read two key passages as they relate to the third commandment. We're not going to read both chapters. Do not worry. Uh, We will be in Deuteronomy verses 1 through 5 and 14 verses 1 and 2. So let's read these short passages and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and a sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether the love that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In 14 verses 1 and 2, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You should not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let us pray. Father, we are about to come before Your Word. And Lord, Your law, Your Word, commands us to be loyal, as we will see, to You, to Your revelation, and to what You have commanded us. Lord, but we are not loyal. We have fallen into sin, and we have continued in unloyal paths and unloyal sins. Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us of those sins. Renew us in your image. Renew us in the image of your Christ. That as he was loyal, that we too would be loyal to your purposes. Lord, be with us now. Be with us in the preaching of the word of God 
that your word, your message, would come to all of us and that we would come away from this place knowing that we have met with our God. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. In our day and age, to take the Lord's name in vain typically evokes the idea of foul language. We're using the term God in a less than holy way or in such a manner that's uh, unbefitting for the name of God. Such as saying, oh my, and you can fill in the blank, but don't. Also, some like to link the third commandment to our obligations to keep our vows and promises. Now, foul language such as this uh, is not in step with biblical teaching, and we should be careful of the language that we evoke. And keeping vows in our word does naturally spring from the third commandment. These are all applications of the third commandment that we need to be practicing. But as it pertains to the third commandment, foul language and promise keeping are not the immediate focus of this commandment, though these principles are important and biblical. The immediate focus of the third commandment is loyalty to Yahweh, to what he has revealed about himself. You see, having the name of Yahweh carried moral responsibility for Israel. And we should remember that names in the Old Testament were important. After going through Ruth, we better be able to understand names are important in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, to know someone's name was to intimately know that person. To have the revealed name of God, Yahweh, was to have God himself. So to misuse God's name through cursing the name or in any way that makes his name as nothing was to, na- to make his name, to take his name in vain. And I think the juxtaposition of vanity with glory is helpful to consider here. Literally, the term glory means heavy or weighty, whereas vain means light and empty. It, it's a, a functional language. So when we glorify God... We make his name weighty or serious, but when we curse or blaspheme God, we make his name vanity, empty. When one breaks the third commandment, it is like saying that God is nothing, that he is useless, unimportant, that he is not the glorious almighty creator king that he truly is. This is why getting the warning for lifting God's name to vanity is so serious. He will, Yahweh will, hold that guilt upon us. To call God's holiness and glory as nothing is a direct affront to God himself. And as we have seen the past few weeks, we should all be in sober contemplation of this. That God loves his glory. But when we honor God as he has revealed himself, we love that glory too. We magnify his name as it is inherently glorious. So when we glorify God, we agree with God that He is it. That He is what life is all about. So when we keep the third commandment, we affirm our allegiance to our God and to His revelation that He is worthy of glory. And this is ultimately what Israel's covenant responsibilities were all about. They were to be loyal to God through glorifying His name in their word and deed. And we see this with our scripture reading for this afternoon. So let's look at what breaking the commandment looks like and what keeping this commandment looks like. Those are our two main points, what keeping and breaking the commandment looks like. So, the prohibition for the third commandment, what Israel was not supposed to do, is this. 
In Deuteronomy 13, it details for Israel what is to happen in the case of a false prophet who counsels rebellion against Yahweh. Chapter 13 lays out three legal cases ranging from individual, individuals to entire villages on how Israel was to deal with those who counseled rebellion, or in other words, disloyalty to God's covenant. For this prohibition, it's vital to underscore that these false prophets were not those who were outside of Israel. It wasn't those who were already Gentile idolaters, living their lives outside of covenant with Yahweh. No, these were Israelites. In verse 1, the text says, If a prophet or a dreamer arises among you, meaning among Israel. But not only that they were Israelites, they were Israelites with some respectability, with some tangible proof to vindicate what they were saying. They had these signs and wonders that they predicted uh, that did come true. Now, this was a common practice among God's prophets of old. The predictions of signs and wonders is well attested among prophets like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. But the difference between these prophets and what God is describing in Deuteronomy 13 comes down to one simple thing. Theology. These false prophets had a false theology that led them to false God and to false practices. And they wanted others to come along the ride with them in their apostasy. You see, it wasn't good enough for these false prophets to keep their theology to to themselves, or to quietly make their way back to Egypt, or to insert themselves into pagan culture. Oh no, they wanted an audience. They needed ears. They needed eyes. They needed followers. It wasn't good enough that they spurned God's covenant themselves. No, they wanted all of Israel to spurn God's covenant with them. They were slippery. Come on. See what this God can offer you. See what other ways you can get to practice religion. See how much better this God is compared to the way you worship now. Our practices are better. Our thoughts are better. Their enticements grow, pulling waywards, Israelites, away from their covenant commitment with their God, their loyalty to God, denying God, forsaking God, making their commitment to God as nothing, as vanity. Through the sin of apostasy, they delegitimize the name of God and His work of salvation from Egypt. Brothers, this is why false prophets are connected with lifting God's name in vain being lured into the line that false gods and practices are better than the God of the Scriptures, apostates dismantle and destroy the unique and glorious status of those who bore God's glorious name. As we see in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, we read this. Israelites had the unique status of bearing the title sons, sons of Yahweh, your God. By going into apostasy and leading others down that wretched, horrendous path. By denying Yahweh, either by profession or by practice. These wayward sons spat upon the name of Yahweh. They spat upon Yahweh himself. The glory of God would be cast down for a lie that would lead to their destruction. Brothers, the day is here and will only increase as time goes by that so many Christians or evangelicals will end up denying their God as well. Through unbelief and forsaking their commitment to the God they once professed, apostates trample underfoot the blood of Christ and curse the Spirit from working in their lives. 
Brothers, we must be warned. It is very easy for us to see apostasy, apostates, as caricatures. It's easy for us to image up, uh, to conjure up that image of God-haters who once belonged to some backwards church with weird theology and even stranger practices, and they just didn't get it right the first time. But brothers, that's just simply not true. That caricature, caricature is not true. No, the, the, this apostasy is alive and well in Reformed and Evangelical churches such as ours. Missionaries and pastors, Sunday school teachers and deacons have denied Christ for the God of their own choosing. For those who are captivated by the Bible and, they, and the Jesus taught in it, they now find their delight in Allah, Buddha, paganism, and postmodernism. Brothers, I can see brothers that I once called dear, dear men of God. I can see their faces before me in my eyes. In my imagination, men that led Bible studies, women involved in outreach, entire families given over to the things of God, people who we would say in our cultural language, they were on fire for God. But now, they simply say this whole Jesus thing isn't worth it anymore. Those who were once radicals now lie deathly limp in their unbelief and vanity. Brothers, they were among us, but they were not truly of us. The fact that there are real apostates simply illustrates the fact that God's word is true when it teaches that false believers and prophets will rise up among the Christian church. The question is, what do we do about that? What happens when we have false believers evidence themselves among the church? For that answer, we need to turn to Deuteronomy 13, verse 5. Please read there with me. Verse 5. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death. Put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God has commanded you. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now again, this is old covenant legislation for for the theocratic state of Israel. Its civil laws concerning apostasy do not apply exactly to us as they did for Israel. But this principle still remains for us. We must excise the evil of apostasy from among us with drastic measures. Next week, we will talk more about church discipline and steps for dealing with unrepentant sinners. But the final step in church discipline is akin to what we see in Deuteronomy. Brothers, to be excommunicated and to continue in unrepentance is effectively a death sentence and a guarantee that the apostate will receive the full measure, the full penalty of their sins. Those who deny Christ will die in their sins. This is a horrifying reality. But it's a true reality. It's a reality because our God is glorious. And he will make his glory known among those who would dare make his glory vain. To make his glory nothing.
We must cleanse this sin from among ourselves. We must cleanse ourselves of those who would cast down the name of Christ to impose their own status of glory, whatever that may be. Buddha or some malignant form of Christianity itself. Brothers, the question for us is whether we will be faithful in executing God's will to deal with apostasy. Or, we give, or will we give an ear for those that we may love or respect, though they despise our Christ? Brothers, the question for us is here, is this. Who will you be loyal to? Who will you listen to? What happens if that once-believing spouse or child leaves Christ behind? Scenario that happens far too often. What happens when a loved leader starts teaching something clearly outside of God's Holy Scripture? Again, another scenario that happens far too often. Will you hear the command of God not to give an ear, but to solely be devoted to what God has already commanded in His Word? Who will we be loyal to? Whose name will we honor? Our unbelieving, unrepentant friend, our loved one, or the God who loved and saved us? May God give us the obedience and loyalty to His way and to His Word and not to some apostate, not some creature, no matter how endearing and close that creature may be to our hearts. Brothers, we need to forsake unbelief and rebellion and we must align ourselves more and more with the God who has saved us, who has made His glory known among us in our salvation in Christ Jesus. Brothers, excise that evil from among us. Now, brothers, these things are hard things to hear. But we, and what we have been called to do is difficult. And it's difficult to evaluate where our heart lies. To choose between that love but wayward friend or family member or our God to choose and align ourselves resolutely with our God should be our most natural response as those who bear His name. And this is what it means to keep the third commandment, to align ourselves with Yahweh. This disposition towards towards loyalty to Yahweh was to be reflected by Israel. They had a unique status as the sons of Yahweh your God. As we read in Deuteronomy, Moses provides certain cultural practices primarily food laws, that distinguish Israel as the unique possession of Yahweh in contrast to the other nations. By these practices, Israel distinguished themselves among the nations and were to bring the glory of God by their loyalty to their God and to His ways to the nations. Again, Deuteronomy 14.1 states this, You are a people, talking to Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And this passage echoes other statements in the Pentateuch that we find, like Leviticus 2, 19.2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. To be the possession of Yahweh, to bear His name, was not only an immense blessing for Israel, but it was an immense responsibility. 
as God's covenant people, they had the responsibility to follow their God, to believe His word, to obey His commandments, and to live in a manner that reflected His glory, His honor, and His majesty. And the third commandment was about their loyalty to God's ways, to His covenant, and not their own ways of understanding it. The third commandment, as we see exemplified throughout the entirety of the Pentateuch, required Israel to be absolutely conformed to God's revealed will. Israel had this responsibility, and the entirety of their lives was to be given over to God's glory, to making His name great. This was their purpose. This is who they are. We are God's people. But brothers, we would be error if we do not know this. Though the law of Israel required absolute conformity and absolute perfection, the history of Israel tells a completely different story. Very rarely do we see this perfected covenant faithfulness from Israel. And we, when we do see a generation of Israel faithful to the Lord, it is typically only a short while after they fall right back into covenant infidelity. And brothers, Israel's story is not unlike our own. We have a high calling as those who have been redeemed and sanctified by Christ Jesus. We have covenant commitments that we need to fulfill. And we have responsibilities to our God and to one another. We're, we're, we're doing this, this class, the new members class. And how we have a responsibility to one another and to our God. That we have these covenant commitments and they're serious. And we need to take them seriously. Because our God takes them seriously. We must be all in to this faith. But the basis of our redemption, brothers, the basis of our redemption and sanctification to our God is not based in our covenant faithfulness. We are not sinless in all of our pursuits of holiness. We often moan and murmur along in our Christian walk. We don't always reflect the glory of God. We don't make God's name weighty by glorifying it in word and deed. Far from it. Brothers, we don't always keep the third commandment. We aren't always loyal to God and His covenant. We sin and break this commandment constantly. Our lives are not the exemplar of what faithfulness to God looks like, even though we may be true believers. Brothers, this is why we don't come before this table to celebrate ourselves. And we don't come to this table to give ourselves a pat on the back. Even in our best days, our holiest days, our godliest days, we are still nothing before our God and King. God's grandeur, His holiness, His faithfulness to us is so much more glorious and weightier than what we can even describe. It's what we call inevitable. And the basis, basis of our holy status before our God is not because we finally got around to being committed or serious about the faith. No. Brothers and sisters, the basis of our holy relation to God is not how loyal or committed we are to the faith or to the scriptures or to the church, but how faithful and obedient our Christ was to his Father. Everyone turn to your Bibles to Hebrews 5, please. And when I say turn to your Bibles, turn in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 5. 
we need to see that our standing in relation to the Father is not upon something that we do. It's not on us. It's not how wonderful we are uh, that we bear uh, in the way that we bear the name of Christ. We need to see this from Hebrews 5. In showing that Christ is indeed the superior high priest, the author to the Hebrews states this in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and by death from that place of the dead, the grave. And he was heard, Christ was heard because of why? His reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, uh, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We need to see three qualities about our Christ here. Particularly as it pertains for his sufficient work for us. As the basis of the covenant that we have with our God. Christ was heard, catch this, by the Father to resurrect him from the grave because of his overt commitment to the Father. And that overt commitment is often translated as reverence. He was all in. He was on fire for the Lord, to use our poor language. Hebrews 5.8 states that Christ learned obedience, but this was not to be taken as some initial lack of obedience to Christ. Christ was sinless. He was always obedient. But Christ learned through the trials that God gave him, culminating in the the trial of his crucifixion. And it was only by being victorious in these series of overwhelming trials that Jesus fulfilled the Father's unique will for, for saving us, is that he kept the law for us, is that he kept the law of the Father in our place. He did the will of God for us. That his obedience, his perfect obedience to the Father, would become our obedience. And this Jesus, having been reverent and obedient to the point of death, having been completely loyal to what his God had revealed to him, was made perfect. Our third point. And in this perfection of absolute loyalty to the Father, the Father does this. Jesus is exalted as the Savior by the Father. He is the God-man that becomes the source or the cause of salvation, of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Brothers, we are called to obey Christ because He is the source of our salvation. Yes, we are called to covenant faithfulness, but we have the great responsibility and we have the great responsibility of glorifying our God. But our Christ does not need our help with magnifying His name. He's done that Himself. He is already magnified by his obedience and loyalty to the Father. Christ is the basis of our holy status before God. He is the source of our salvation. He doesn't need us. We need him. Without Christ, without, without Christ, we cannot lift up the weight of God's name. We don't even have the ability without Christ to lift up God's name in glory. But Christ, in his keeping the third commandment, the Father raises up Christ and magnifies this Christ, his name, in glory. Brothers, we are called to glorify Christ, and it's because he is already glorious. We're simply recognizing that our Christ is already, he is a perfect covenant keeper, he is a perfectly obedient son to his Father. 
That is what we worship. We worship the Son who has been obedient to His Father. We have worshipped a God who has been obedient to His God. Yes, we are called to glorify God. But not merely by how great we are in making God look good. Not by our covenant faithfulness. Not by our mere loyalty. God doesn't need a pat on the back. Especially by us patting the backs of ourselves. No. God is glorious and magnified with or without us. Brothers, if you have been renewed by God's grace, you want to glorify God among the nations, among the apostates, among those who despise God naturally. But we need to point the nations to Jesus. He's both the example and object of God's glory. Don't show how your imperfect obedience, however godly it may be, is still imperfect. Don't show off your imperfect obedience, but direct all eyes of the nations to the perfect obedience of Jesus that magnifies His Father's name, not ours. Brothers, it's time now that we come before our God and commune with God who magnifies Himself through His Son. May we have our faith firmly planted in our glorious Christ and not ourselves. We come to this table not by patting ourselves on the back for getting something right, but because our Christ has done all things perfectly, we come to this table. Come to this table, brothers, not venerating yourselves, ourselves, but lifting up that name of Christ in wonder of his salvation and his glory. Brothers, we're coming before our God in his glory. May we prepare ourselves appropriately. May God be with us. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that though you have given us the command to be loyal to you, that even still in our, perfect, uh, in our imperfect loyalty, no matter how good it may be according to worldly eyes, it does not compare even to the loyalty that your Son had for you in this life. Lord, we come in this, to this table glorifying you through your glorified Son, through the power of the Spirit, who is thus lifting us to glory on that last day. Lord, help us as a foretaste of the glory and the communion that we will have in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, let this now be a time in which we get to take and partake of that sweet communion as just a simple taste of what is in store for those who are loyal to Christ. Lord, keep us from our sins. Amen.